In this chapter, we have contrast between the king and his son, Saul, the king, and Jonathan, his son. Here now the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word, 1 Samuel 14. Now it came to pass upon a day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said unto the young man that bare his armor, Come, and let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side, but he told not his father. And Saul tarried in the uttermost part of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. And the people that were with him were about 600 men. And Ahiah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people knew not that Jonathan was gone. And between the passages by which Jonathan sought to go over unto the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp rock on the one side and a sharp rock on the other side. And the name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other Sene. The forefront of the one was situate northward over against Michmash, and the other southward over against Gibeah. And Jonathan said to the young man that bare his armor, Come and let us go over unto the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. And his armor-bearer said unto him, Do all that is in thine heart, turn thee. Behold, I am with thee according to thy heart. Then said Jonathan, <clears throat> Behold, we will pass over unto these men, and we will discover ourselves unto them. If they say thus unto us, Tarry until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and will not go up unto them. But if they say thus, Come up unto us, then we will go up. For the Lord hath delivered them into our hand, and this shall be a sign unto us. And both of them discovered themselves unto the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Behold, the Hebrews come forth out of the holes where they had hid themselves. And the men of the garrison answered Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said unto his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord hath delivered them into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed up upon his hands and upon his feet, and his armor-bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer slew after him. And that first slaughter with which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made was about twenty men, within, as it were, an half acre of land, which a yoke of oxen might plow. And there was trembling in the host, in the field, and among all the people, the garrison and the spoilers, they also trembled, and the earth quaked. So it was a very great trembling. And the watchmen of Saul in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude melted away. And they were on, they went on beating down one another. Then said Saul unto the people that were with him, Number now, and see who is gone from us. And when they had numbered, behold, Jonathan and his armor-bearer were not there. And Saul said unto Ahiah, 
bring hither the ark of God, for the ark of God was at that time with the children of Israel. And it came to pass, while Saul talked unto the priest, that the noise that was in the host of the Philistines went on and increased. And Saul said unto the priest, Withdraw thine hand. And Saul and all the people that were with him assembled themselves, <coughs> and they came to the battle. And behold, every man's sword was against his fellow, and there was a very great discomfiture. Moreover, the Hebrews that were with the Philistines before that time, which went up with them into the camp from the country round about, even they also turned to be with the Israelites that were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, all the men of Israel, which had hid themselves in Mount Ephraim, when they heard that the Philistines fled, even they also followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed over unto Beth-Avon. And the men of Israel were distressed that day, for Saul had adjured the people, saying, Cursed be the man that eateth any food until evening, that I may be avenged upon mine enemies. So none of the people tasted any food. And all they of the land came to a wood, and there was honey upon the ground. And when the people were come into the wood, behold, the honey dropped, but no man put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan heard not when his father charged the people with the oath. Wherefore he put forth the end of the rod that was in his hand and dipped it in an honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes were enlightened. Then answered one of the people and said, Thy father straightly charged the people with an oath saying, Cursed be the man that eateth any food this day. And the people were faint. Then said Jonathan, my father hath troubled the land. See, I pray you, how mine eyes have been enlightened because I tasted a little of this honey. How much more if haply the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, which they found. For had there not been now a much greater slaughter among the Philistines? And they smote the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aijalon. And the people were very faint. And the people flew upon the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slew them on the ground. And the people did eat them with the blood. Then they told Saul, saying, Behold, the people sin against the Lord and that they eat with the blood. And he said, Ye have transgressed. Roll a great stone unto me this day. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say unto them, Bring me hither every man his ox and every man his sheep and slay them here and eat and sin not against the Lord in eating with the blood. And all the people brought every man his ox with him that night and slew them there. And Saul built an altar unto the Lord. The same was the first altar that he built unto the Lord. And Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and spoil them until the morning light and let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatsoever seemeth good unto thee. Then said the priest, Let us draw near hither unto God. 
And Saul asked counsel of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Wilt thou deliver them into the hand of Israel? But he answered him not that day. And Saul said, Draw ye near hither all the chief of the people, and know and see wherein this sin hath been this day. For as the Lord liveth, which saveth Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people that answered him. Then said he unto all Israel, Be ye on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said unto Saul, Do what seemeth good unto thee. Therefore Saul said unto the Lord God of Israel, Give a perfect lot. And Saul and Jonathan were taken, but the people escaped. And Saul said, Cast lots between me and Jonathan my son. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what thou hast done. And Jonathan told him and said, I did but taste a little honey with the end of the rod that was in mine hand, and lo, I must die. And Saul answered, God do so, and more also, for thou shalt surely die, Jonathan. And the people said unto Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who hath wrought this great salvation in Israel? God forbid, as the Lord liveth, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he hath wrought with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, that he died not. Then Saul went up from following the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. So Saul took the kingdom over Israel, and fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, and against the children of Ammon, and against Edom, and against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines, and whithersoever he turned himself, he vexed them. And he gathered an host, and smote the Amalekites, and delivered Israel out of the hands of them that spoiled them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, and Ishuai, and Melchishua, and the names of his two daughters were these, the name of the firstborn, Merab, and the name of the younger, Michal. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimeaz, and the name of the captain of his host was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. And Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. And there was sore war against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he took him unto him. Thus far the reading of God's inspired word from 1 Samuel chapter 14, quite a passage. Verses 1 through 15, we have Jonathan's heroic defeat of the Philistines. He says, let us go over to his armor bearer to the Philistines' garrison. We see his faith, his determination, his courage, his heroism, quite a man in Jonathan. And he did not tell his father. This is ordinarily a breach in the chain of military command, but Jonathan does it nonetheless. Now notice, in contrast with the heroism of his son, what do we find Saul doing? Saul has been a great man so far. We've seen good things come out of him. Now what do we see? 
Here's his son fighting God's enemies, and here's him doing what? Sitting under a pomegranate tree, not doing jack squat, as we say. He's sitting there tarrying in the uttermost part of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree. Now, when the word tarry is used, it means something sits still, not active, not doing anything, as contrasted with Jonathan. Perhaps enjoying the pleasant fruits while his son prepares to do a daring feat in reliance upon God's promises. And with whom does Saul keep company? Do you remember Ichabod? Remember we read about that this morning. It's the glory of God, right? Ich it means it's gone. The glory is departed. Whose son is that? Phinehas, the son of Eli. And what did the man of God say about this race of men, this race of priests? Were they going to last long? Were they going to do much good? No. Their arm would be broken off, the man of God said. Ahiah was the son of Ahitub. Ahitub was Ichabod's brother, and they were both sons of Phinehas, the sons of Eli. There he is, a cowering king with a cursed curate, a priest under the judgment of God, a king under the judgment of God, as we saw in chapter 13. Now contrast this again back to Jonathan. Sharp rocks on the one side, no pomegranates apparently, no cursed curates together to hang out with. Jonathan taking his courage in God with overwhelming odds, with danger. The rocks were called bozes, glistering white, and the other was sene, thorny. These were like swords sticking out, and did that stop him? No, he went on against overwhelming odds. And notice his language. Let us go over in verse 6, under the garrison of these uncircumcised, both in heart and in flesh. They're aliens from the life of God. They're under the wrath of God. Certainly, we have the chips stacked in our favor, we would say. It may be, he says, that the Lord will work for us, for there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. Jonathan is a man instructed in the power of God, in the providence of God, in the word of God. Let us have such confidence or grow in such confidence in God's power, in his providence, in his word to us. We can't constrain God. Remember when we pray, if it be thy will, God hasn't told us something's going to be the case. We have to say if it's his providence, if he wishes it to be so. He can't constrain God, but certainly he has good grounds of hoping, doesn't he? Good grounds that God will give him the victory. And his armor bearer says, do all that is in thine heart. Now, ordinarily, this phrase is much abused. Just follow your heart, in other words. And what is naturally in the heart of man is corrupt and sinful. So if you follow your heart, as Disney tells you, what are you going to be? A wicked, corrupt, sinful pervert. That's what you'll be. And that's what they want you to be. So follow your heart. Follow your dreams. You've got a hero inside of you. That's not what he means. Jonathan's purpose is conceived in faith for the glory of God and reliance on the power of God and the promise of God. Follow that if that's in your heart. Absolutely. Do all that is in thine heart. Jonathan then has 
a word of prophecy. If they say thus unto us, tarry, tarry until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place. But if they say, come up unto us, then will we go up, for the Lord hath delivered them into our hands, and this shall be a sign unto us. Just like circumcision was a sign. Oath is the Hebrew word. It's a confirmatory mark or something, some miracle that God performs. You think most military bases say, hey, enemy, come up here. No, they have the superior force. They're going to come down and attack you. That's what they're going to do. So if they say, you come up here, they're saying, well, this is unusual. Then, therefore, God will give us the victory, Jonathan says, by the spirit of prophecy. So look at the Philistines, verse 11. Behold, the Hebrews come forth out of the holes where they had hid themselves. You see what they are? They're confident that they will win, and they're mocking Jonathan and his armor bearer. That's what they're doing. And does pride lead to great victories? It often sets people up for defeat, and so it does here. They mock Jonathan. Ah, they're like conies coming out of the holes of the earth. Come up. And we will show you a thing. The Dutch annotations say, we will teach you and make you feel what it is for a man to jeopardize himself rashly. We'll teach you a lesson. Come on up. Jonathan then says to his armor bearer, come up after me for the Lord hath delivered them into the hand of Israel. You notice a very grave contrast between what we read out of Saul's mouth, don't you? That I may be avenged on my adversaries, Saul says. What does Jonathan say? Jonathan says that God has delivered them into the hand of who? Me, Jonathan, mighty man of valor that I am. No, to the kingdom and people of God, that is Israel. A man who loved the kingdom of God, who did not seek his own glory, but advanced the kingdom of God. And we'll see this in his friendship with David, won't we? You remember that he takes all of the king's son's clothing and he clothes David with it. We'll see this in the passages to come. He's going to relinquish his claim on the throne so that David may be exalted, a man Truly, who feared the Lord, Jonathan, such a good friend to David. So they fall, the Philistines do, before Jonathan. And even his armor bearer comes through, slaying them as well. This is the first slaughter, verse 14 informs us. Later, the Philistines would slaughter each other. Then the Israelites would cha chase them, and that would be the third of the slaughters. Now notice, in God's providence, through this conduct and the spirit of prophecy and valor in Jonathan, that there was trembling in the host, in the field, and among all the people, the garrison and the spoilers, they also trembled, and the earth quaked. The whole army of the Philistines, do you remember how many there were? 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and the infantry was like the sand on the seashore. Next time you go to the beach, try counting the sand. Can you do it? Of course you can't. It's innumerable. This enemy was so overwhelming 
But what did God do? What did Jonathan say? God can save by few or by many. It's his choice. He'll do it if he wants. It may be that he'll work with us and drive back our adversaries. Did God do that? He did. Trembling in the host in the field, even the spoilers going out to take advantage of Israel, they tremble, and God, just to throw in for good measure, makes an earthquake occur. They tremble, the earth trembles. God's getting ready to judge. Even the insensible creatures quaking at the vengeance and judgments of the Almighty. Saul then has a follow-on victory, verses 16 through 23. Tags along for the ride, you might say. Verse 16, Saul notes that the multitudes of the Philistines melted away and they went on beating down. They were confused, self-slaughter, dropping like wax from a candle, bodies falling to the ground. Then, note verse 18, Saul said to Ahiah, bring hither the ark of God. Now remember, Saul's got these links in his black chain of reprobation. Here's one of the links. Do you think that Saul needs to inquire of God or really wants to inquire of God? We're going to find out he doesn't really want to. He might say that he wants to inquire of God, but watch what happens. He says, bring the ark here, as if he wanted to know the will of God revealed as a pretense of piety. But note verse 19. What happens when he hears the noise of the host of the Philistines? What happens when it gets louder and louder? What does he say? Well, I'm, I said I was going to inquire of God, so I'd better do it. Is that what he says? Nope. Once he hears the noise of the war, once he sees the destruction of his adversaries, he gets distracted, we might say. Well, I guess it's not that important. The cares and concerns of this life, they're pretty important. You over there, you Ahia, withdraw your hand. Don't inquire. I don't, wanna, I don't want you to bring me the ark. I don't want you to inquire of God. I don't need to know. I'm going to go down there and win. I need to get involved in the action. Why should God not be inquired of? Why should Ahia withdraw his hand? Was the Lord's power not on full display? Were the hosts of the Philistines not destroying themselves? Why wouldn't you want to pray at that moment? Why would you want to go down and fight instead of inquiring of the Lord? What could Saul possibly gain by going down to battle at this time? What? Anything? What good could he do? Well, he could ride in at the end and say, Look at a mighty warrior I am. That's what he could do. God was already destroying his adversaries as the sand by the seashore. Did he need to get some kind of glory for himself? Apparently so. So Saul says, the worship and inquiry of God, not important. Me riding the ways of success, very important. It's important that I look good. It's not important that I serve God, in other words. Let us seek first the kingdom of God, not our own acclaim. 
Let us seek the glory of God and not allow the cares and concerns of this life to draw us away from inquiring of God, of seeking Him in His appointed means. Mark here the black chain of reprobation. Saul seeks glory of men rather than the glory of God. Saul does not worship God consistently, but by fits and starts, maybe I'll do it, maybe I won't. No, he's not devoted to glorifying and worshiping God. Saul then and all the people that were with him assembled themselves and came to the battle. Bit late, aren't you? An easy, cool victory after Jonathan, the inspired hero, and God himself strikes them down with an earthquake, now you're going to show up and you're going to say how great you were. And notice the turncoats in verse 21. The Hebrews that were with the Philistines before that time, which went up with them into the camp from the country round about, even they also turned to be with the Israelites. Traitors, aren't they? Fair-weather friends. Oh, we're winning now? Okay, we're on this team. We're going to be on the winner's team. These are your own people, Hebrews here. Lots of cowardice, lots of traitors in this day. Likewise, all the men of, men of Israel. Remember those guys who went to the other side of Jordan? Now they're back too. Oh, we're about to win? All right, we're here. We're here to play. We're here to fight. But notice... God attributes properly. The Lord saved Israel that day. This is victory traced to the proper source in this narrative. Do you have successes and victories in your life? Where do you think they came from? Do you think they just came by your might and your wisdom and your strength and cunning? No. Should we use might and wisdom and strength and cunning? Of course we should. Should we rely upon the horse and the chariot or the sword? No, those are a vain thing in battle. God gives the victory. God saved his people. Then we have the military folly, the rashness, and the occasion for sin that Saul presents, verses 24 through 46, almost leading to the death of his son. The men of Israel are said to have been distressed that day. Chapter 13, verse 6 uses the same verb, and it says that the Philistines distress them. Guess who's distressing them now? Their king, Saul. He's distressing them. How did he do it? He adjured the people, saying, Cursed be the man that eateth any food until evening. Hold on. Time out. Time out. Do you know how a, a, an army marches? They march on their belly, said Napoleon. What did he mean? You want them to be able to march, what do you have to do? You have to feed them. You have to have food. You have to have the rations supplied to your men. Now, look at this fool Saul. How's he going to have victory? Nobody eat! Oh, and you're going to pursue all night after these guys? Seriously? Nobody eat? You want them to go and fight on an empty stomach? He adjured the people. He called down an oath, a solemn oath, before God to curse anyone who ate any food until the evening. Why? Well, who knows? Rash, foolish oath. He's abandoned by God. He's flittering about in his own wisdom 
And notice verse 24, why does he want nobody to eat? Think about this for a second. That I may be avenged on mine enemies. That's why nobody should eat. Okay, so you want to win real good, so let's starve everybody, right? Does that make sense? Makes no sense. In fact, Jonathan will point this out. No man puts their hand to their mouth because they feared his oath, verse 26. I note then, we who govern, let us see that our oaths, our demands, and our government are not rash, not foolish, not self-interested, but rather to be true, publicly spirited for the glory of God and the good of his people. Jonathan and his sort show how to serve God with a public spirit for Israel's sake, not for my sake, my enemies. Not making these rash kind of oaths as Saul does. We ought to use our government to help our inferiors with their duty rather than hinder them in their duty or set them up to fail. That's what Saul's doing. He's setting up his army to fail. And notice... He wants to be avenged on his enemies, but he uses the opposite means. Not the right means, not the means suited to actually defeating your adversary, but those means which would cause you to have a lesser victory or to lose. And Jonathan had not heard this rash oath. He had dipped the end of his rod into a honeycomb he put it to his mouth and his eyes were enlightened. Isn't that good? Isn't that what you want in your soldiers? For their eyes to be enlightened? There was no malice in this. And notice in verse 29 when he hears of it, Jonathan said this, My father hath troubled the land. Now ordinarily, when our superiors sin, we have to be very cautious what we say. It better be very important if you're going to point out a flaw in your superior. Was this very important? Well, yes, you bet it was. The whole entire people of Israel was troubled by this rule. And so Jonathan points it out. I note then that self-interest and disobedience to God are counterproductive. When we are self-interested rather than seeking the glory of God, we will undo the very thing we wish to accomplish. I wish a great slaughter on my enemies, so let me starve my people so that they can't give a great slaughter upon my enemies. Doesn't make any sense. The eyes are blind through disobedience and self-interest. This is part of his black chain of reprobation. In fact, Jonathan in verse 30 said there would have been a much greater slaughter had everybody eaten some food. My eyes were enlightened. What if everybody had some food? You've troubled Israel, Saul. Let us then be wise in our choices, in our words, in our utterances. Let us calculate not rashly, but carefully for the glory of God. And notice he occasioned, Saul did, the sin of the people. The people flew upon the spoil and did eat them with the blood. This was occasioned by Saul's rash oath. A fake law, his adjuring the people, 
caused a temptation in the real law that God had given. Do you know why you couldn't eat right away if you had to bleed out an animal? What do you have to do? Well, you have to hang the animal up, slit its throat, let its blood pour out, and then you can have the animal to eat according to God's law for Israel. They had to do that. So if you are mighty hungry and have been fighting and you've been told you can't eat anything, once you get that animal dead, it's going to be real tempting to get that meat off right away because you are starving, you are famished, you need food. So what did he occasion? An actual sin against God, eating with the blood. God required you plan out your meal beforehand, not rush upon the spoil. But because they're starving, what do they do? They rush upon the spoil. Saul demands the people stop eating with the blood. And he does not take responsibility for it. Though the people themselves sinned in doing it, that is to be sure, God forbade it, but he occasioned his inferiors to sin. He encouraged them to do what was wrong. He then goes to inquire of God concerning whether he should continue his ongoing fight against the Philistines. The priest has to remind him, hey, shouldn't we ask God? Remember how you were going to ask God and then you stopped and you went your way? Well, shouldn't you do it now? You want to know if you should follow after them, right? So he's reminded, and then he does actually inquire. And when he inquires, what answer does he receive? Nothing. God's not talking to you anymore, Saul. He's spoken enough, and you've ignored him long enough. He's not listening to you, and this will get worse and worse. Saul will have no one but the devil to go to eventually, and so he'll go to a witch. And that will be his final act of folly. Saul has an afterthought to inquire of God. He already wants to do what he wants to do. He has this notion of his own purposes being the most important thing. And let us be warned by Saul. His priorities are not the kingdom of God, not seeking the righteousness of it, not obeying the laws of it. So he wants to inquire who actually sinned. Who is it that did wrong? Who violated my oath? That's actually the question that's being answered. <coughs> and the question is answered with Jonathan himself. And so verse 44, Saul demands his death. Jonathan the hero. Jonathan the leader. He must die. Again, this is foolish. This is intemperate. This is inconsiderate. This is self-destruction. Do you know why Saul will try to kill David? Because he wants Jonathan to be king. What's he going to do to Jonathan right here? He's going to kill him. Why? Because he disobeyed your foolish vow. That's why. Your rash oath that you imposed upon the people. Remember that? And rather than confess and acknowledge all these evils that he's done, he has to be overcome by the people. Shall Jonathan die who hath wrought this great salvation in Israel? God forbid! Verse 45, the people have to rescue Jonathan so that he doesn't die, so that Saul has an heir to the throne. You see how foolish Saul is. Our larger catechism asks this question, what is required 
of superiors toward their inferiors? The answer comes back, it is required of superiors, among other things, by grave, wise, holy, and exemplary carriage to procure glory to God, honor to themselves, and so to preserve that authority which God hath put upon them. Now, gravitas is like the glory of God, the weightiness, the sobriety of it. Do you think it's very grave to adjure your people not to eat so that they can go kill your enemies? You think it's very wise to say, now my heir apparent, I want him dead because he had a little honey, because he didn't do what I want? Do you think that's wise and grave? Do you think it preserves the authority that was given to Saul? Of course it doesn't. He doesn't bring honor to himself or glory to God. He has the whole nation up in arms and saying, no, you're not going to touch one hair off of Jonathan's head. Is that the proper posture of inferiors toward their superior? Of course it isn't. It's defiant. But notice, Saul put himself in a position to be defied by being a fool. Let us then, who are in authority especially, be grave, wise, and holy. Let us be an example to those who are under us so that they may follow us in the things that are good especially in seeking the glory of God, for this will add honor to us in our authority. Saul did not this thing. Saul did the opposite. Then verses 47 through 52, we have the general exploits of Saul and his family connections. We notice him taking men, conscripting them in verse 52, just as had been threatened in chapter 8. 